you're being seated, I invite you to take your Bibles, if you will, and turn to the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. We are looking at, a, at an episode from David's early life, as it is described for us here in 1 Samuel chapter 16. And I'll begin reading at verse 1. This is the first in a series of three anointings for David to become king. The Lord, the Lord said to the prophet Samuel, How long will you grieve over King Saul? I have rejected him from being king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and set out. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Samuel said, How can I go? If, if Saul hears of it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do, and you shall anoint, you shall anoint for me the one whom I name to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? He said, Peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he sanctified Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked at Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is now before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord does not see as mortals see. They look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. He said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass, pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen any of these. Samuel said to Jesse, Are, are all of your sons here? And he said, there, there remains yet the youngest, but he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. He sent and brought him in. Now he, this youngest son, was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. The Lord said, rise and anoint him, for this is the one. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David. From that day forward, Samuel then set out, and he went back to Ramah. This is the Word of God. Would you pray with me? Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts together be acceptable in your sight. For you and you alone are our rock and our redeemer. 
Amen. About 30 of you have spent several months with me uh, since this last fall going through the life of David in a study on Monday mornings. I'm so grateful for the time that you have spent with me in this study. I know what this study has meant to me. David is obviously one of the central characters to the Bible. There are 66 chapters in the Bible about David, more than any other individual. David is mentioned 59 times in the New Testament. David is a central character in God's grand story of salvation. So it's important that we know, that we grow in knowing the life of King David. The text before us this morning is a famous text. We probably learned it in Sunday school for those of us who grew up in Sunday school. And it comes from the time when the young, young David, the shepherd boy, probably about 14 or 15 years old, is anointed as king over the people by the prophet Samuel. It's an amazing story. It begins talking about the prophet Samuel. The prophet Samuel watched the people as the people predominantly chose Saul to be their king. The people chose Saul. This text makes it clear that God is choosing David. The people chose Saul and it did not work out well. And at this point in the book of 1 Samuel, Saul has learned that he is being rejected by God and that God is going to raise up a new king. Here in this point of the story in 1 Samuel, God tells Samuel to go to Bethlehem, a city with which we're familiar. The word Bethlehem, Beit Lecha, means house of bread. We know about Bethlehem. Here God tells Samuel, the prophet, to go to Bethlehem. And if he goes to Bethlehem to find Jesse and look among Jesse's sons, and he will find the new king that is to be over the people. Well, to begin with, Samuel is frightened. You see, for Samuel to leave Ramah and go to Bethlehem, he has to pass through Gilgal. That's where Saul, King Saul, lives. And if King Saul got wind of what it was that Samuel was doing, the errand upon which Samuel had been sent, it could prove devastating for Samuel. So God says to Samuel, just go and lead worship. Tell Saul, if you encounter Saul, you're just going to Bethlehem to lead worship. Go there and lead worship, and then you will invite Jesse and his sons to join you. So God was helping Samuel to be, as Jesus says, as wise as a serpent, but as innocent as a dove. So he goes, he makes it to Bethlehem, he offers the worship, and then he asks Jesse to bring his sons before him. I picture them in the home there at Jesse's place, and Jesse begins to bring his sons before the prophet Samuel. He brings seven, seven of his sons, and if you didn't know any better, you would think he just has seven sons. He brings these sons before him as Samuel is listening to God to declare which one of these sons is to be the new king. 
And first there comes Abinadab. First there, actually, first there comes Eliab, then comes Abinadab and Shammah. Evidently, Eliab looked. I don't know what this means exactly, but evidently Eliab looked like a king. He was kingly. And by the way, there's going to be a coronation of, king, of a king in England on May the 6th. You'll get to watch a coronation. Well, evidently, Eliab looked kingly. But Eliab's not the one. And it's after Eliab came through, when Samuel thought, surely this is the Lord's anointed, that the Lord spoke to Samuel and said, do not look on his outward appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord does not see as mortals see. They look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So then comes Abinadab. It's not Abinadab. Then comes Shema. It's not Shema. And it's rather interesting to me at this point, Samuel says to Jesse, well, don't you have any more sons? And Jesse says, oh, oh yeah, I do. I, re I remember now, I do. My youngest, Eugene Peterson translates the text as my runt, the runt of the litter. Yeah, oh yeah, I've got another son. He, he's out, he's the youngest. He's out keeping the sheep. So Samuel says to Jesse, get, get that son in here. And we won't even sit down till you get that son in here. So he brought that son in here. He's not even been named yet. He brought that youngest son in here. And you see that the text says that he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. The word ruddy there is very interesting. I've learned something over the years about what the word ruddy means there. The Hebrew is admoni, which can be translated reddish. He is reddish. He's reddish, and he has beautiful eyes, and he's handsome. I learned that several years ago when I was in Israel with a group, and in my group I had taken a young man who was redheaded. I learned that among the Jewish people, particularly there in the state of Israel, they really have high, high esteem for redheads. And here I had this young, redheaded boy with us that was traveling. I felt like I was traveling with a rock star, particularly in regards to all the young women we came across. They called him a gingy. That was the Hebrew word. He's a gingy. And I finally had to ask, what's going on here? And it was explained to me, he's got red hair. And David had red hair. We have this thing about redheads in the state of Israel. So here comes David. He's ruddy or reddish. He had beautiful eyes, and he's handsome. And the Lord spoke to Samuel and told Samuel, this is the one. And Samuel anointed him as king. There's going to be three more or two more anointings of David as king. There's three in total. He anoints David here amongst his family as king. And then the text says, you heard it, the Holy Spirit came mightily upon David. At this point, the Holy Spirit, God, is equipping and preparing David for the task ahead, the journey ahead. Perhaps you know the story of David. It's lengthy. Perhaps you know that there are going to be about 10 years of where David has to run and flee from the anger, the temper of King Saul. It's going to be about 10 years from this anointing 
for the young shepherd boy until he becomes king of the people. First he gets anointed king of Judah, then he gets anointed king over all of Israel. God prepares them. God's with them on every step of the journey, even when the journey became very, very difficult. And God got him to the place where he would be the reigning, the ruling king among the people of Israel. And of course, in this story of the first anointing of David is the famous text, for the Lord does not see as mortals see. They look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. David evidently had a heart that God could work with. We read in the Bible one time in the New Testament, one time in the Old Testament, that David was a man after God's own heart. David had a heart that God could work with. Perhaps as he was out there for the few years prior to this, taking care of the sheep, he learned intimacy with God. He practiced intimacy with God. God knew that he had a heart that he could work with. We need to understand what the Bible means when the Bible talks about our heart. The Bible, particularly in the Hebrew way of looking at it, has a certain understanding of the heart. The heart is, is our inner life. It includes our emotions. It includes our will. It includes our intellect. It includes our desire. It includes all of our inner being. And we need to understand also, and this is what is probably the most important thing I'll say this morning, we need to understand how the Bible views the heart. The Bible, both Old and New Testaments, have a particular take on the heart. And this particular take on the heart, this particular way of viewing the human heart is very countercultural to the world in which we find ourselves. Let me give you a couple couple examples. In the Old Testament, the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 17 speaks on, speaks on behalf of the, of the whole tradition, the Jewish tradition, and he says this about the heart. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? That's the view that the Bible takes of the human heart. Jesus, Matthew 7, says, for from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, conceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. It's quite a list. You know, if Jesus could have heard anybody in his day say, he certainly wouldn't have because it was not part of their culture. It's part of our culture. If Jesus would have heard someone say, just follow your heart, Jesus would have given you a really strange look. If Jesus would have heard anyone say, listen to your heart, let your heart guide you. Now we know we hear that kind of language in our age and sometimes we even in the Jewish Christian community, we, we so think like the age around us, we may even say something like that. Yes, follow your heart. Well, that's completely opposite from the way the Old Testament, New Testament views the heart. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. And it's from the heart that the problems of life flow. So the Bible has its own very peculiar, particular take on the heart. 
And we need to understand that, and we need to also understand that only God can see the human heart. So we need to be very, very careful when we judge another human being because the only thing we can see is what's on the outside. We just can guess, make some assumptions, even if they're intelligent assumptions, about what's in that heart. But we have a particular understanding of the heart in the Jewish and Christian tradition. The Jewish and Christian tradition, the heart is something that needs constantly to be examined. That's part of the reason for the season of Lent. We spend the season of Lent examining our hearts. We spend the season of Lent trying to present our hearts to God. We we need to examine our hearts. We need to protect our hearts. The book of Proverbs says a lot about protecting our heart because it's from our hearts that all of our activity comes. It's from our inner life that our outer life is formed. And that's why we need to protect our heart, to use some computer language, garbage in, garbage out. We need to protect our heart. But particularly from a Jewish Christian tradition perspective, we need to bring our hearts to God. We need to bring our hearts to God for cleansing and redeeming, saving. You know, David has lots of twists and turns in his life. After he becomes king, there's that sad, sad episode where he commits adultery with Bathsheba. And then he has Bathsheba's husband, Uriah the Hittite, killed. When I look at that sad, sad episode in David's life, uh, the best I can do the math, I see at least four of the Ten Commandments broken by David. He covets Bathsheba. He commits adultery with Bathsheba. Then he has Uriah the Hittite killed so that the pregnancy will be covered up. And then he bore false witness. He lied. Sad episode from the life of David. But even though David was a man after God's own heart... He was not a perfect human being. We're all in this category. We can have a heart that's chasing after God, and then we're still not perfect. It was only nine months after the sad episode in David's life when he was called out by the prophet Nathan that David finally confessed and repented. And you know the prayer of confession that David spoke to God. We, we read it. It's a familiar psalm. We read it together every Ash Wednesday. We did this past Ash Wednesday. It's Psalm 51. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. That's part of the prayer of repentance that David prayed after he, after he was confronted with what he had done with Bathsheba. So from a biblical perspective, we have hearts that need to be cleansed. We have hearts that need to be redeemed. The prophet Ezekiel in the Old Testament said that when the New Testament comes, the new covenant comes, part of the new covenant, part of the new work of God is we'll be given new hearts. Part of the work of God in Jesus Christ is we can be, we can be given heart transplants. Our hearts of stone can become hearts of flesh, as Ezekiel says. Our hearts can be cleansed. Our hearts can be made new. That's what Jesus Christ does for us. That's the way the Bible views our heart. 
is something in need of cleansing, redeeming. One of my favorite hymns is a hymn that was written by William Cooper. Now, Cooper is spelled C-O-W-P-E-R. If you say Cowper in England, they'll laugh at you. It's William Cooper. William Cooper was part of that 18th century evangelical revival along with John and Charles Wesley and George Whitfield and John Newton, the person who wrote Amazing Grace, William Wilberforce, that evangelical helped bring an end to the slave trade. William, William Cooper was part of that group. And by the way, as an aside, we need to reclaim the word evangelical. The word evangelical around the world just simply means Protestant. If you're in Europe, you're either Catholic or evangelical if you're Christian. Our Book of Discipline says we are an evangelical denomination. Now, I know in the contemporary age, the word evangelical has been dragged through the mud in so many ways, and the word has been hijacked by the culture around us. We just need to see evangelical as a Protestant that's focused on the, on the evangel, the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are an evangelical denomination that came out of that evangelical revival of the 18th century there in England that came to the colonies. William, William Cooper was one of the greatest poets of his age. He wrote the poem that begins, God moves in mysterious ways his wonder to perform. He also wrote another hymn that's my favorite. We, we sing it occasionally. There's a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. There is a fountain filled with blood. It talks about that cleansing of our inner life so that we can live as Christ followers. I love that hymn because that hymn displays in so many ways what it is that Jesus Christ can do for us that we absolutely cannot do for ourselves. My family knows that when the time comes, there's a phrase from this hymn that I want engraved on my tombstone. It's the phrase from this hymn that says, redeeming love has been my theme. I don't want to just be affirmed or celebrated. I need to be redeemed. That's the condition of the human heart. We can't know what's in other people's hearts, so we need to be very gentle and loving toward them. That's why we don't pass judgment on other individuals. We don't know the heart. Only God knows the heart. We don't even know our own hearts well, but God knows our heart perfectly. He knows we have hearts that need to be cleansed and redeemed. He knows our heart well, and the thing that we need to understand is the one who knows us the best, the one who knows our heart the best, loves us the most. That's the gospel. That's the good news. So my friends, this is the gift of God in Christ for us. After we profess our faith in a moment, we're going to finish by singing that great hymn. And by the way, I know that Mr. Wesley will be very happy that we're singing a hymn written by one of his friends. We'll be singing this hymn in a few moments. Uh, the altar is a wonderful place for prayer. A Methodist altar is a wonderful place to encounter God. So uh, if, the, if, the, if the Spirit leads you, perhaps you would like to use the altar during this final hymn and, and ask God to continue the work of cleansing and redeeming your heart.
so that you can live more and more to the glory of Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Holy Spirit, we offer you our hearts. Amen.